before we get to the podcast, we'd just like to talk about one other excellent podcast from Osiris Media, The Road to Now. The Road to Now is a series of conversations that trace the historical roots of today's events. It's hosted by Bob Crawford of the Evett Brothers and Dr. Benjamin Benjamin Sawyer. Uh, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal history-based podcast. I listen to a lot of these. Uh, revolutions comes to mind. Hardcore history comes to mind. The Road to Now does what a lot of history podcasts don't do in that they ask really simple but really important questions, talk with some of the smartest people in the industry, have complete curiosity, just like a childlike curiosity towards historical information, historical stories, what have you. And you walk away every single episode feeling like you just left the best, I would say, 200-level college lecture hall filled with new knowledge, new perspective, and some sort of a semblance that things are going to be all right, even if they may not be. It's one of my favorite podcasts of all the podcasts I listen to. If you like Beyond the Pond, you know that we take music in a historical context. We take fish in a historical context. If you're interested in history, if you're interested in current events, I cannot recommend listening to The Road to Now enough. And on that note, let's go beyond the pond. I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into episode 89 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic only focus on their favorite band and all aspects of their being and sometimes forget that there are many other fish in the sea, no pun intended. So, this podcast is for you guys, but really, just anybody who wants to be introduced to some new music, this pond is deep, this pond is open, you are more than welcome here. Absolutely. And we are very excited to be sitting down here and chatting about a jam from 28 years ago this spring. A jam, a take on a song that we have long loved, that you have long loved, and a version that I don't think it's talked about that much. No, it doesn't. 
Not at all. And that is the April 8th, 1992 version of David Bowie from Albuquerque, New Mexico. A phenomenal jam, a really forward-thinking jam, and one that we have figured out some ways to introduce you guys to some new music that we think you're all going to dig. Some themes that you can expect to hear about this episode include the American Southwest, young, goofy, and peaking, and you know, our new record is awesome. They say that Santa Fe is only 90 miles away. Let's get talking about Albuquerque. Let's get to the fish. So why are we talking about the April 8th, 1992 version of David Bowie from Albuquerque, New Mexico? Well, first and foremost, this is an extremely rare, fluid and jammy, loose and exploratory jam on David Bowie. Extremely rare for the time. Spring 1992, especially April is really the first peak for fish. But it's an era that's not necessarily known for its jamming. This jam, however, was a huge breakout moment for the song, a song that two years later would redefine what was possible within Fish's music. Highlighted here by a full-blown tweezer reprise jam, the fact that they were capable of finding this at this point in their career is just stunning. Might interject to say the jam is certainly in the style of a Twee Prize in the sense that it builds and gets more intense, but they never actually play the riff. But the build is similar and thrilling and can uh, certainly be likened to it. Yes. Yeah, there's a it's very distinct to like the build towards the end of Twee's Reprise. And almost more impressively, though, is the rhythmic Calypso jam that emerges as they're making the turn back into Bowie. This is the kind of sectional jamming that would become commonplace in summer 1993. But here we hear for the first time, one of the first times, if you will, the band latching on to another idea and then another idea and seeing it through. And this is one of our favorite things about fish jamming. So also, as we know, on uh, March 6, 1992, the tour opener in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, fish introduced the secret language to the fans and the introduction to this David Bowie has just about I don't think everyone but almost every secret language cue in one convenient place there's the um pa pa the ah oh, fuck the Simpsons tease pretty sure most of it gets covered so it's certainly a good primer in addition to uh, that Portsmouth show yeah, and it's. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the secret language is so much of what defines some, uh, spring 1992. That was like the band's first moment of communicating with the fans and with each other in a non-verbal uh, way. 
that allowed them the opportunity to break through these various steps of communication where they were able to jam on another level. That just wasn't where their heads were in most cases at this time, uh, at this time of the tour. What's interesting, just to touch on that Calypso jam once again, long term, this type of jamming, this jamming on another idea and then finding another idea is really what's going to define fish. This ability to creatively peak, but then explore what's on the other side. Post-peak jamming, if you will. Uh, we covered this in, I believe it was episode 42, Fish Pandora Part 2, when we talked about the Atlanta 2018 Karini. Um, while the initial peak of a song is often glorious, what's on the other side is really what makes it great. And for immediate reference, just think of that big ship segment of the MSG Tweezer that we played in uh, episode 87. So we think in terms of other versions of David Bowie that are kind of similar, we came up with uh, May 8th, 1993 from Durham, New Hampshire. Of course, this was the huge triumphant uh, spring tour 93 closer. They incorporate uh, the song Have Mercy into that David Bowie. We also had uh, May 6th, 1994 from Houston, Texas. October 18th, 1994 from Nashville. Of course, that's the set with... uh, the really awesome Bela Fleck sit in later in that set where like Llama goes acoustic electric. Very, very cool. 11-4-94 from Syracuse. Uh, one of the more standard-ish Bowies, if you will, of uh, November 94. But still a very cool melodic type of uh, swirling jam. Uh, jump into 3.0. Uh, Detroit, 611 or 6-3-2011. Um, really great tight, taut jamming within Bowie in a fantastic second set and July 22nd, 2013 from Toronto. Uh, one of my favorite Bowies of 3.0 and one that um, if you haven't gone back and listened to it since the time of that show, that was famously rescheduled because of flooding during that summer. Uh, highly, highly recommend that jam. Every show seemed to get flooded in July 2013. Yes. That was, uh, that was the flood tour. That was, that was that was the big thing. Certainly, Mother Nature playing the fifth member of Fish. <laughs> in that so, in terms of uh, the significance of the show and I guess the spring run, I mean, when you listen back now to April of 1992, it's kind of amazing how fast and upbeat these songs were played. And I think at this point, all the band members were between ages 26 and 28 at the time of the show. It just simply sounds like they're young, they know they're hot shit, and they're having the time of their lives. They're playing like they have something to prove. Plus, they're like cracking jokes on stage. This was one of the shows where um, before Mike's song, you get Mike doing the call it what you want, say it what you will, but you know it's my song. <laughs> and there's lots of yucks when uh, like Fishman comes out for like Cold as Ice Terrapin. You know, they're obviously enjoying themselves and um, at this point in their lives. Yeah, it's a really good point from an age standpoint. If, if you think uh, looking ahead a couple of years, you know, they were in their early to mid-30s during the 95 and 97 period. You can hear such a clear differentiation between a style and speed and mood from this partying spirit of the uh, early 90s and what they were doing from like a much slower more thoughtful jamming standpoint just a few years later. These shows were just a ton of fun, though, overall. 
It was a pretty relentless spring tour. I mean, it was about two months straight, minimal days off. It started in early March, ended in the middle of May, literally going from the East Coast to the West Coast to the Midwest and back to the East Coast. Picture Nectar had just been released in February, and I mean, although I think most of the songs in Nectar have been played or out in the ether for at least a year at this point, they knew it was good, they really wanted to show it the fuck off, and that just manifests itself in really good versions of those songs. Absolutely, and where we're finding the band here is they're in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This is at the point in the tour where the band was all caps peaking. The run from March 31st in Columbia, Missouri to May 2nd in Chicago is really the first true extended peak of Fish's career. I mean, you can obviously make arguments for uh, what they were doing in fall 1990 for the Horns Tour Summer 91, stuff that was happening in 1988 and even parts of 89. But this is like that first true leveling up for Fish that's going to lead directly into summer 93, uh, June, July 94, November 94, on and on and on. We know these months, we know these periods over the last 30 years essentially now where the band just continued to take a step up over basically 18-month increments. Um, this is where, especially on the West Coast run, we see the band starting to really mix up their set lists, they jam with just stunning ease, and they're taking those first steps towards Summer 93's breakthrough. Um, Want to go through just a couple of shows that we would recommend from this tour and from this period. Uh, these are just, for us, the standout shows, the most complete shows, and really just showcase where the band was at their best. Uh, so, aforementioned, March 31st from Columbia. So a few nights later, April 4th in Boulder, uh, April 16th, uh, Isla Vista, California. This was many kids' first exposure to Iculus and Mockingbird. Mostly because that was the show of uh, Follow Me to Gamehenge, which was the off-traded, very frequent um, CD bootleg that seemed to pop up everywhere in the 90s that was also sped up a beat. <laughs> so leading many people to think that classics like Susie Greenberg were in a slightly different key than they actually were in. But I I don't know anyone who didn't have that. This was back in the day where you could like buy bootleg CDs from random ass CD stores and was, thought it was kind of okay. <laughs> uh, up the coast, you got San Francisco on April 17th. April 18th from Stanford. Uh, this has one of my favorite Harry Hoods ever with the Linus and Lucy jam. Uh, and just a few nights later in Eureka, uh, April 21st is one of the best shows with a fantastic tweezer that we've considered featuring here on Beyond the Pond for years uh, and opted here for this Bowie because it's a little bit lesser known. And we have April 24th, 1992 from Portland. Also, my wife's 10th birthday. Didn't know her at the time. May 2nd, 1992 from Chicago. May 12th from Canton, New York. May 14th from the Capitol Theater in Portchester, New York. And then finally, May 17th from Schenectady, New York. Also, we're noting back on April 18th, they played Avenue Malkanu. I think that was over uh, the Passover holiday. 
So Trey says, Mike is going to wish you a happy Passover with the bass solo. <laughs> so what's interesting is that um, this show took place in New Mexico. And hopefully the New Mexico fans didn't latch on to fish that much. Because uh, not counting three days opening for Santana, Fish has only played New Mexico a total of five times and not once since 1999. So probably the best examples of Fish in New Mexico, aside from the show we're talking about now, would be um, March 8th of 1993 from Santa Fe. That had a Forbins into Mockingbird and a Yem. You can join myself into Kung. Back in the Enjoy Myself. May 10th, 1994, also from Santa Fe. Reba, Harry Hood, Bowie all in the second set. And the last show played in New Mexico, September 22nd, 1999 from Las Cruces. 2001 opener. Little nod to the UFO sightings in the area. A big gin in set one and a huge, huge ghost and a fantastic tour for ghosts. Uh, if you haven't listened to that show, I highly recommend it. It's really eerie. It's You can just hear like the cold desert swirling around them in kind of late summer, early fall. Really fantastic show. Just say, sort of on topic, one of my favorite Grateful Dead shows of all time is actually from um, September 11th, 1990, uh, 1983, from the Downs in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It was also Mickey Hart's 40th birthday. So... Check that out, a little extracurricular dead for you. But for now, let us listen to a little bit of the David Bowie from April 8th, 1992, from New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico.
Hi, I'm Bob Crawford, and beginning this winter, I'll be hosting a new original podcast focused on the 2020 presidential election, The Politics of Truth. On The Politics of Truth, we'll get expert analysis from our nation's most reliable journalists, experienced pollsters, pundits, and historians. And because this is the Osiris Network, we're going to speak with musicians from your favorite bands and get their take on the intersection of music, politics, and activism. The Politics of Truth, first episode premieres February 7th. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit osirispod.com slash politics to learn more. All right. I hope you guys really enjoyed that version of David Bowie. This featuring this kind of reminds me of when we featured the April 2nd, 1993 Weekapog Groove from Bellingham, Washington. And I think we should dip more into Spring 92, Spring 93 gems. There's just so many gems in here, you know? I concur. It's really, really fun, really... What's that show? Was it like March 13, 93 from like Gunnison, Colorado? Yeah. There was like, you enjoy myself with... Tons uh, of fourteenth, fourteenth, oh, 14, yeah, three fourteen. There's just so many teases in it, and there's like a yeah. yes, owner of a lonely heart jam. Yeah, I remember being yeah, that. That show is like years ahead of its time. Right. It's so good. I remember being like fifteen years old, listening to this and thinking, "Holy shit, this is the <laughs> greatest band ever." <laughs> so I hope you guys enjoy that as much as we did. Um, that show uh, is very archetypal for. April 92, we both have been enjoying listening to it. It's fishing at a different speed, fishing at a totally different era. It's just a lot of fun. Um, but moving into our first segment of music here, we wanted to focus a little bit on the American Southwest, this jam coming to us from New Mexico, kind of a rare area for fish to play. They don't really play the Southwest at all anymore. Um, your best bet of seeing Trey or Mike in Phoenix is through their solo bands. But this is an area of America that's uh, fascinating. I've driven across it a number of times. I've visited uh, all, all, uh, all the states down here. I mean, I live in Colorado at this point in time. It's only a couple hours drive away from me to the desert. It's a really fascinating place. And musically, there's a lot of fascinating, insightful music that... Uh, I really love to listen to that's made in this in this uh, region. So I'm going to talk about a really important musician and producer. And I was going to say, just to intro it, when we decided that we were going to dedicate a segment to the American Southwest, my th- first thought was to focus on Eno's ambient series, specifically on land. But then I admitted to myself and to Dave that I cover Eno a lot on here. You should all know and love Eno. We will cover Eno again in the future, I promise. That said, I've never directly covered Daniel Lenoir. Uh, so much of his music, however, has lingered and lingers over that that I, pre- that I promote on this podcast. So we're going to play something off of Daniel Lenoir's 2005 record, Belladonna. The song is called Panorama. Quick background on Daniel Lenoir. He's a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, and producer, worked with artists as wide-ranging as U2, Brian Eno, Bob Dylan, Peter Gabriel, Neil Young, Emily Harris, and Willie Nelson, among others. Raffi as well, that's a good call. 
Uh, he first worked with Brian Eno, who he partnered with throughout much of the last four decades on um, David Lynch's Dune soundtrack. And then the two went on to work together with U2, first on The Unforgettable Fire, later on The Joshua Tree, Octoon Baby in, in 1991, and then reuniting with the band for 2000's All That You Can't Leave Behind and No Line on the Horizon. He really captures, both of them capture the sound of U2 in a very unique way, and I would do anything for a partnership to spark up again here soon. Uh, along the way, he produced So for Peter Gabriel, Have Mercy for Bob Dylan, as well as Time Out of Mind about 10 years later, and Lenoir for Neil Young, or Lenoise, which came out in 2010 and is one of my favorite Neil Young records of all time. Uh, in many ways, all of his work with all of these artists, especially Brian Eno, came full circle on his 2005 record, Belladonna, which is his ode to Brian Eno's music and to the American Southwest. Of note, Brad Meldow, one of my favorite pianists, plays piano on this record. Panorama, the song that we are going to play here, it just sounds like driving across the desert in the middle of the night. Clear sky, very few cars on the road, just like that darkness that just slowly falls over you as like the sun just creeps behind some just naked mountain off in the distance and you can just start to see stars everywhere. It's just unbelievable stuff. Listen to this, close your eyes, imagine yourself driving across the middle of nowhere between Arizona and New Mexico. It's a fantastic imagery. It's a beautiful song. Let's play a little bit of Panorama here off of Daniel Lenoir's 2005 record, Belladonna. for the Lenoir. So what I'm going to talk about in terms of the American Southwest is an indie rock band that's been around since the late 90s, still very active to this day. They are called Colexico. album I'm going to briefly touch upon is Feast of Wire from 2003, and the song we're going to play from that is a little bit of The Black Heart. Now, Calexico is a, uh, a Tucson, Arizona-based duo of Joey Burns and John Convertino. And they've kind of made the career out of uh, like presenting indie rock explorations of the Southwest, complete with mariachi horns, kind of twangy Spanish guitar, spaghetti western noir, and just more traditional 
uh, folk pop leanings, especially on their 2006 album, Garden of Ruin, which was almost too much of a folk album. Kind of missed some of the more Southwestern uh, things. Kind of everything on their records is shot through a bit of a funhouse mirror, can be evocative of David Lynch soundtracks. Not for nothing that one of uh, their earlier songs was featured in a 2009 episode of Breaking Bad. In a sense, the ultimate seal of Southwestern approval. And really, when people talk about Calexico, they talk about Ennio Morricone a lot. They talk about film soundtracks. I mean, certainly, the music puts images in uh, like people's minds. So they've had several records since their inception in the late 90s. Most of them, varying degrees, are very good. But I think my favorite, and I think by consensus, the one where you really hear everything click together is 2003's Feast of Wire. That record contains uh, jazz and dub instrumentals, Ennio Morricone-influenced cowboy movie Atmosphere, desert waltzes, and folk pop, none of which sound out of place, and they're all shot through with um, with Joey Burns, who kind of has like reedy vocals. Sometimes he gets compared to uh, Dean Warren from Luna and Galaxy 500 fame. And although Colexico are technically a duo... Each of their albums is fleshed out by a variety of musicians. I know they've released two albums with uh, Iron and Wine, Sam Beam, and they've had guests as varied as Tortoises, Doug McCombs, and Nico Case. So let's listen to a little bit of The Black Heart by Calexico off of the Feast of Wire album. Transitioning here, we're going to talk a little bit about new music that is coming out. And in between recording here, uh, Dave and I have just been commenting. We're recording this in the last week of January. You know, one of the things that made 2019 so special was William Tyler, Steve Gunn, Cass McCombs, a bunch of others I'm forgetting right now, Sharon Van Etten, all put out excellent records in January that it felt like we just got just like a gigantic post-Christmas present of new music. 
took a little bit longer here this year. This this last week to 10 days is the first time it really felt like we had some fantastic new music on a consistent basis that we're both really stoked about to share with you guys. We've both got probably a top six list <laughs> of the of the year, if you will. But um, we want to talk a little bit about a couple of those records that we've been loving. I'm going to talk first about uh, the fourth album from the Athens, Georgia psychedelic country band, Future Birds. The record is Teamwork, and it might be their best record thus far. Uh, really, the thing that's crazy about this record, it is certainly their best produced album. It feels like there's actual money put behind this record in a really cool way. Uh, it, however, takes nothing away from the rustic bar, sm- bar stomping sound that defies them at a ba- defines them as a band. So I saw Future Birds twice in 2019. I'm seeing them again here in late March. And all of this was after Hotel Parties from 2015 was my number six album of that year and had lingered in my rotation for the next four years. The thing that hit me the most when I saw them was, one, they are so, so locked in live. Between their harmonies, their communication, and joking with the audience, their overall energy, they're just one of the most consistent live shows that you can see. And two, this band just deserves so much more press and attention. I mean, these dudes are approaching 40, and they're still hauling their own gear, and there's no good reason that they shouldn't be selling out three to 5,000-person venues on a regular basis. I'm hoping more than anything that songs off of uh, teamwork and that this record as a whole is what can potentially elevate them to another step. Songs like Trippin', which is like the archetypical Future Bird song with its country radio sway and the chorus of, I would have hell to pay, baby, if I didn't have you. It's taken time to show itself now, but it's always been true. I took a long time tripping all over myself. have to ride it out till I got nothing else. I read recently... That Future Birds are My Morning Jacket plus Kurt Vile plus Craig Finn. I think I'd agree on most of it. However, I think it misses on the country earnestness that is forever at the core of their sound and just splattered all over this record. Uh, I've recently become enamored with late 80s country records, and this album just sounds akin to that in the same way that the War on Drugs sounds so much like Neil Young's life as well as Tom Petty's Southern accents. Just that reach back to these like bigger sounds that were happening in the eighties from a musical standpoint. It's, I love it when bands can incorporate that in a really, uh, in a really like subtle nod to it. Uh, song wandering minds has been opening their shows and it does such a great job to showcase their over dynamics, their harmonic intricacies and their own forlorn view on the world. And perhaps most essential is just the complete aspect to this record. Like I said, I came to discover this band through the album Hotel Parties, which was gifted to me two months after my son was born via my brother's music dump onto my phone. He came out to visit me and said, you just need new music. And I was so thankful because at the time I just didn't have the time to really look for it. Hotel Parties spoke directly to this part of my life that had just completely ended by becoming a dad without any fanfare, without any warning. That said, I could really only enter that world via side A, and once I got past the title track, it was really hard for me to keep chugging along in this dream world. I had to kind of go back to some sense of reality. Now, I have no idea if the members of Future Birds have kids, but I can say that there's a depth to this record teamwork that wasn't present earlier. 
Well, my initial appeal to future birds was their youth, this escapism spirit. What may ultimately keep me following this band is the pain and the sadness and the aging process that I detect within this record. I see so much myself in the band overall, this kind of shaggy following a dream that's somewhat out of focus, hanging towards the edge of this mainstream, but also filled with this earnestness and youthful spirit. The challenges of aging creeping in, death becomes more ever-present, dreams die a bit and place a reality. And yet, within it all is the spirit and this energy and this recklessness that defines the potential path forward towards success and sustainability. I truly, truly hope that Future Birds makes it as a band. I sincerely hope that I am able to watch them push towards their own larger goals and then the goals beyond those goals. Whatever happens, I am just excited to hear them make an album like this that I can then follow. I can hear them follow up with in a couple of years with something that's even has a little, even more depth, is even darker. But at the time being, teamwork is a fantastic accomplishment for the band. I'm really excited to see them flesh these songs out live. And if you haven't checked it out, I cannot recommend enough teamwork by Future Birds. I have checked it out. That album's very good. I agree. I liked it. Uh quite a bit listened to the whole thing on a, a subway commute about one week ago I was very happy that I did but I'm going to talk about a different album Brian an album that I know that uh, you also like a whole lot this is the new self-titled album by um, what's being called the folk supergroup Bonnie Light Horseman you know how sometimes you just listen to a record and get positively floored in the 45 seconds maybe that comes around once or twice a year if you're lucky but we're only four weeks into 2020 and here we are with this album that i just put it on and i said oh shit here we go <laughs> so bonnie light horseman is a super group of sorts comprising eric johnson who's uh the vocalist from the fruit bats singer songwriter and now a tony winner because uh, she's the mastermind behind Hades Town, Anais Mitchell, and uh, the guitarist producer Josh Kaufman, who has been uh, Craig Finn, the Hold Steady's go-to production guy as of late, in addition to uh, doing a lot of work with his Golden Messenger and the National, and uh, especially Bob Weir. So each of these musicians is an associate of uh, Justin Vernon, and I think. Both the idea and the live debut of this band took place at uh, the Eau Claire Festival, which, of uh, course, Justin Vernon owns and runs. And uh, I think at its heart, the album is a recontextualization of British and Irish folk songs, many of which have already been covered in some form by uh, groups such as Pentangle, Sandy Denny, and Shirley Collins. But uh, what cannot be overstated is how just incredibly well-produced in beautiful this album turns out i mean anias mitchell and eric johnson the voices kind of melt into each other and the production is somehow both minimalist and clear as a bell it's really intimate i mean in fact from a sonic standpoint the album is an extremely close cousin to uh bob weir's blue mountain record from 2016 which kind of stands to reason because uh josh kaufman also produced that album he produced this album, he applies the same touches, and it just has a very lived-in feel. I know I was floored by that Bob Weir record. I mean, in terms of like aging gracefully, I'd, that album's underrated. I mean, I don't think people yeah. talk about it 
nearly enough. It just takes his cowboy motif, it makes it sound lived in and awesome, and a lot of like the same production techniques are used for this album. And if it sounds like I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, it's just that when I first listened to this last week, I was sitting on a city bus and nearly had to fight back happy tears because of I thought how pretty and well-formed it was. I mean, I think I texted Brian with a photo of the album saying, this is fucking amazing. And then he texted back like, dude, you're the third person to text me that today. <laughs> so I wasn't wrong. If you like this podcast, seek out this record. It's not exactly what you'd call uplifting. It has like a bit of, um, I guess, like sadness and melancholy. But it's easily one of the most fully realized things I've heard in ages. Already on my shortlist for, uh, for album of the year. So, do it. All right. So, segment two, we are going to talk about young, goofy, and peaking music. We mentioned in the start of the show about Fish's age during the Spring 92 tour. They were critically in their mid-20s arrogant on top of the world starting to really realize what their what power their music had and we wanted to focus on a couple other bands that were in the same position and i'm going to focus on one of my favorite bands of all time and a record that i have i was looking to try to make sure i hadn't featured this before i featured it in a segment of fish pandora uh episode 27 Mm. I think associated with the MoMA dance from Worcester 03. I don't even remember how I connected it. <laughs> uh, <all laughs> I have right. no idea how we connected it, but I was like, okay, cool. I haven't totally touched on this record. This is one of my favorite records of all time. It is uh, The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society. And we're going to play the second song from the record, Do You Remember Walter? So this was the sixth album for what I would say is probably the most underrated British invasion band that there is and was their final with their original quartet. Uh, At its root, this album is a testament to British village life. It's a series of vignettes that tell the story of Ray Davies' upbringing in the halcyon and dreadfully boring village Britain of the 1950s. Ultimately, this is one of my favorite albums of all time. But the reason I selected it here is the total young flex move of recording an album about something as banal as rural country life in post-war Britain. I mean, this is akin to Fish's commitment in spring 1992 of zany Northeastern prep school humor and musical influences that had peaked in style and they were now projecting towards greatness, not to mention their damn secret language that they brought with them that was just so earnest and cute. In addition, and I think it's of note, the Kinks had been excluded from America, not invited to take part in the British invasion due to difficult relations with union heads. And here they just doubled down on their own Britishness in one of the most authentic ways possible. Again, similar to fish traversing the country in the early nineties and just being as nerdy Northeastern prep school boys as possible. The only thing that fails for the kinks here is that the album completely failed to chart. Now, at its root, Village Green is a plea for a return to that safe space everyone needs in life where they can be themselves, where nostalgia and memories come flooding back. 
even if the setting played a significant role in the challenges you're dealing with later in life. And I can't help but think right now about the Arcade Fire's The Suburbs, which is much more earnest, not nearly as funny. I don't think there's a funny, like, there's not been a funny breath that that band has ever taken. Um, But it's got that similar feel to writing about suburban upbringing as a way to both rebel as well as be nostalgic. Also, in um, Blur's Park Life and The Great Escape, kind of similar themes. Yes, and there is a band that actually has a sense of humor. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, All this is perfected in Animal Farm. Uh, It's just an excellent encapsulation of this idea that everyone is really mad, but the village green is where you can be yourself, devoid of stresses of modernity. Uh, The contrast to all of this and to the fish comparison, I will say, was that 1968 was a very difficult time for the band. They were suddenly not charting. Legal issues prevented them from growing their audience in the U.S., and there was infighting in the band that would ultimately lead to fissures following the band's uh, release, or the record's release. That said, in the lead-up to the album's release, the band was very vocal that this was their best album that they'd ever made. The energy driven from such a nostalgic work was enough to overcome the challenges surrounding the band at the time. Of note, The Village Green was released on November 22nd, 1968, the same day as the White Album. Hmm. I know that. The record. Yeah, right? (laughs) The record was released to near unanimous praise, which has continued. Uh, Of note, when Pitchfork reviewed the record in 2004, they gave it a 9.5. However, like I noted, it has failed to chart. While ultimately, or what ultimately has sustained the record is a cult following surrounding it. Pete Townsend, for example, lists this as his own personal Sgt. Peppers. Now, I I first discovered this record uh, after first hearing the kinks, like really hearing the kinks in 2007 while traveling through Europe. I was past Lola versus the Power Man and the Money Go Round. And I was immediately past this afterwards when I probably listened to that record for like two weeks straight. Just completely blew my mind and still hits me every time I hear it. Um, I, I realized how much I had missed by not spending my childhood immersed in the goofy, self-conscious universe that Ray Davies was immersed in. Something I certainly felt when I first learned about fish and i was like oh my god what am i going to do to make up for these years that i did not listen to this band we'll just listen to more and more fish so without further ado we're going to go ahead and play do you remember walter off of the kinks are the village green preservation society Do you remember Walter How we said we'd fight the world So we 
Okay. I'm going to talk about for being both young and goofy and peaking as all hell. Maybe a little bit of an obvious pick to me, not to some other people. Talk about the Pixies album, Surfer Rosa, from 1988. The song we're going to play is the opening track, Bone Machine. It's a little tough to imagine now, but man, there was like a five-year period from 1987 to 1991 where the Pixies were the coolest and possibly cool motherfuckers on this planet. I mean, the Dandy Warhols even have a great song called Coolest Kim Deal, which just makes perfect sense in context. And the Pixies, they could have stayed that way. They could have been had their coolness captured in amber. I mean, they directly influenced Kurt Cobain, who admitted to ripping them off. But uh, they did get back together for some reunion gigs in 2004 when they are in their late 30s. And they've really kind of been back doing the nostalgia circuit ever since albeit now without uh, founding bass player Kim Deal, and they keep putting out records that, well, not exactly terrible, they just simply can't match the goofy intensity of their immortal four-album run. And I'd argue that Surfer Rosa, which came out in 88, is the best of these, matching both uh, Charles Thompson, a.k.a. Frank Black, his fiery yelp and surreal lyrics to Kim Deal's cooler-than-thou backing vocals and deceptively complex bass lines, with classic Steve Albini production, you really hear the classic Albini ribbon mic drum sound on this album. And really, Bone Machine might be the greatest album opener ever. You get David Lovering's drums, then the bass line comes in, then that riff, the chorus. I mean, it's uh, something you just want to walk down the street shouting obnoxiously. And there's nothing about the song or the album that's not completely obnoxious, but these kids were in their early 20s and they were going for it. And I would say outside of the albums, there's an amazing concert on YouTube. There's a full concert of the Pixies live at Brixton Academy in 1991. It kind of pulls off the twin trick of them rocking out insanely hard, but also seeming like they'd sooner be anywhere else in the world. They actually broke up for the first time later in that year. But man, if you ever want to know like how we got to, quote, alternative rock, how we got to Nirvana, why David Bowie felt compelled to cover the song Cactus off this album, everything starts and ends with Surfer Rosa. I mean, I think the album Doolittle uh, may have had more hits, even though Surfer Rosa has Where's My Mind, which is kind of their most popular song. Uh, Bossa Nova was more of a surf rock record. Their uh, initial swan song, Trompe Le Monde, that's the one that has the cow eyes on the cover and the tribute to the guy who built the Eiffel Tower. But Surfer Rosa remains the one Pixies album to have if you're going to have one. They were young, goofy, and cool as fuck.
All right, guys. Thank you so much for hanging with us here. This was our first traditional episode in quite some time. Yeah. I want to say since the Cypress Roses. I think that sounds right. Okay, I was like, what, two months ago? Yeah, something like that. Did a recap of Fall Tour, Best Albums, Holiday Run, uh, MSG Run, and then Broadway. Yeah, this Mm. is... uh, Welcome back to traditional BTP, guys. This was a really fun episode for us to record, and we got a bunch more of these coming this year. Um, Want to get get in the habit of these as much as possible, as as along with some really cool other episodes for you guys. So, um, along with focusing on the David Bowie from Albuquerque, New Mexico, on April eighth, nineteen ninety two. In segment one, we talked about the American Southwest. I featured Daniel Lenoir's Belladonna. The song was Panorama. Dave featured Calexico, Feast of Wine, great record, the song The Black Heart. New album recommendations, once again, I talked about Future Birds' teamwork. Dave talked about Bonnie Light Horseman's self-titled debut. These two records, in some cases, represent that turn in early 2020 towards consistently great releases. So excited to see what's coming up next. In our second segment, Young, Goofy, and Peking. I talked about the kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society song. Do you remember Walter? And Dave talked about uh, Pixies, the album Surfer Rosa, the song Bone Machine. So just a reminder, you can always find us on social media. We're on Twitter at at underscore beyond the pond. Sometimes Brian tweets, sometimes I tweet. We mix it up. We have a Simplecast page, uh, beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. Of course, you can always find us on Spotify. We have the Beyond the Pond podcast song, Master Playlist. It's ridiculous at this point. It probably has over 600 songs. We should probably break it into multiple volumes, but sometimes it's just fun to press shuffle and see what the hell comes up. Mm-hmm. Please check out the other fantastic Osiris Media podcasts at OsirisPod.com. There are plenty of fantastic things to explore there. The site is looking really good. And leave us an iTunes review. Leave us some stars. Write a review. We enjoy reading them. Anything to increase our visibility in Apple land is a good thing. Absolutely. And our publishing structure, as you guys well know, every other Tuesday is typically what we're going for. We're going to kind of kick things into high gear and speed things up here as we move into the spring of 2020. Bear with us. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up ahead. But uh, most times of the year, you can find us every other Tuesday. Tuesdays have no feel. So why not go Beyond the Pond? Beyond the Pond is a proud member of Osiris Media and is hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman and edited by Brian Brinkman. So, if you've gotten this far in the episode, once again, we thank you very much. Hope that you have uh, found some new music to listen to, some classic April 1990 fish, April 1992 fish to go back and listen to and explore. It is well worth it. I would say come back in two weeks. We will hold hands. We will fight fish myopia. And as always, we will go beyond the pond.